The context for our gospel reading is found in Matthew chapter 21. In that chapter, Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly seated on a donkey. And as you know, when Jesus does that, multitudes of people turn out to meet him. Virtually the whole city is stirred up. But Jesus wasn't there just for some grand entrance. Because immediately after Jesus enters Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that he makes a beeline for the temple. And when Jesus gets to the temple, the fireworks begin. Jesus arrives at the spot where the sacramental connection between God and his people had stood for a generation, yet he doesn't begin by shaking hands and slapping backs. Jesus offers no congratulations for a job well done. Instead, he drives everyone out of the temple and overturns the tables. Every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every priest, every so-called respectable religious figure found in the temple was kicked out that day. And in their place, Jesus invited in the riffraff of Jerusalem. The blind, the lame came to Jesus and he healed them. The children were invited in. They came to Jesus and they sang songs to him. And of course, if you were one of those respectable religious figures that had been run out of the temple that day, you were absolutely livid. But very soon after Jesus cleanses the temple, he and his disciples leave Jerusalem and they spend the night in Bethany. The next morning they woke up and they begin to make their way back to Jerusalem. But on their way back, Jesus cursed a fig tree saying, may no fruit ever come from you again. And with that pronouncement by Jesus, the fig tree withered at once. I remember the very first time I heard that story. I became a Christian later in life, and I thought it was one of the most random, nonsensical things I had ever heard. Why on earth did Jesus hate this tree? But you see, the fig tree wasn't just some random tree that Jesus happened to curse. No, the fig tree was the national symbol of Israel. And cursing something so closely tied to Israel cast a shadow of dire implications. Imagine it this way. Let's say one day Jesus stormed into the state capitol and kicked the governor and every other elected official out into the streets. And then in their place, Jesus invited in all of the homeless people. Jesus then left Austin and wandered into, off into the hill country. It had been a crazy and unexpected day and Jesus had caused a real scene and everyone was talking about it. As the sun rose on the next day, everyone finds out that Jesus was on his way back to Austin again. You could feel the tension in the air. You could sense that people were on the edge of their seats, just waiting to see what would happen next. Would Jesus walk into Austin and do more of the same? Or would there be a more diplomatic resolution? You're a reasonable person, so you hold out your hopes that things do go peacefully. But as Jesus makes his way back to the Capitol building, he passes by a field of blue bonnets. Jesus looks at the state flower of Texas and curses them. And immediately after his words, every single one of them withers and dies. And with an entire field of blue bonnets dead, Jesus started walking towards the Capitol in Austin once again. If that happened, would you bet that the coming meeting with the governor would be contentious or peaceful? If you were walking beside Jesus and saw him curse those flowers, do you think it would be good news for Texas or bad? <laughs> exactly. 
I think that as Jesus walked back to Jerusalem, the effect of him cursing the fig tree would have struck the disciples in that same exact way. With a dead fig tree behind them, the disciples walked with Jesus back to Jerusalem. Once they entered the city, Jesus re-entered the temple. The temple he had cleansed just days before, and you could cut the tension with a knife. Would he come in throwing haymakers like he did the day before? Would he be as provocative as yesterday? Would he rebuke and chastise the religious leaders once again? These questions and many more were swirling through everyone's mind. But as Jesus had a habit of doing, he did something unexpected. He didn't re-enter Jerusalem with the pomp of the previous day. He didn't seem determined to pick a fight with the religious leaders at all. He didn't do anything extreme like kicking everyone out of the temple. The cursing of the fig tree seemed to point towards some coming violent crescendo, but for the rest of chapter 1 and moving into chapter 22, there's no violence. There's no arguing. Instead, Jesus' teachings are clear and calm. But for as clear and calm as his demeanor might be on the surface, even though outright conflict seems to be absent, underneath his parables, underneath his teaching lay a rebuke of the Pharisees so strong that it would have overshadowed even the cleansing of the temple itself. In those same exact parables, in those same exact teachings, Jesus shows the implications for his disciples were just as radical. Here's how Jesus begins to show all of Israel that he was doing something brand new. A man plants a vineyard. In preparation for the fruit it will produce, he places a wine press in it. In order to protect the vineyard, he builds a watchtower and a wall around it. And with everything in place, the man hires people to work in his vineyard and tend the land. After some time, their hard work begins to pay off. The season of harvest has come and the vineyard has produced much fruit. And so the owner of the vineyard sends some of his servants to gather the fruit, the fruit that was grown in his vineyard. But when the servants arrive to reap the harvest, what they receive instead of fruit is a vicious beating. The master of the vineyard responds by sending more servants, but these servants receive the exact same greeting as the first, a vicious beating. The master sends a third group of servants, and the same thing happens to them as well. The beating of the first group of servants, maybe that was a misunderstanding. But three beatings of three groups of the master's servants, not a chance. The violence that was inflicted on the master's servants was intentional. The tenants of the vineyard were clearly defying the master and his claim over the vineyard. So the master of the vineyard comes up with a plan. And the hope is that this plan will shock these rebellious tenants to their senses. He's done sending servants to collect what his. This time he'll send his very own son. And surely the mere sight of the vineyard owner's son will remind these rebellious tenants they own nothing here. Everything they see around them belongs to the owner and their job is to steward the vineyard, not claim it as their own. But the tenants see the arrival of the son not as a chance to repent, not as a chance to remember to whom the vineyard truly belongs. They see the arrival of the master's son as a chance to permanently seize control of the vineyard. If the tenants kill the son, then the owner has no heir. 
and then the vineyard would be theirs. But the tenants have made a crucial miscalculation in their plan because when the owner of the vineyard hears they've killed his son, he will come and destroy the tenants and in their places as tenants of the vineyard, it will be given to someone else. They thought killing the owner's son would ensure their victory, but as it turned out, killing the son of the owner was the exact way their demise was ensured. Or as Jesus put it, the stone that was rejected would become the chief cornerstone. Jesus had only days to live, and he knows it. The wicked tenants in the vineyard would soon come from him and claim his life. And so Jesus uses this parable to confront his murderers. He uses this parable as a way to say, I see you. I know what you've done to those who were sent to you in the past. I know when the Father sent the prophets, you beat them, you spit upon them. I know you've shamed and rejected virtually every servant sent by my Father. Servants that were sent to you by my Father to collect his fruit. And instead, what they collected from you was scorn and contempt. And for his terrible of an indictment as persecuting the prophets of God is Jesus warns them the evils they plot against the son of the vineyard owner what they're about to do to the son of the father will not ensure their safety it will not guarantee their positions of power and authority nope rejecting Jesus like one rejects a useless rock killing Jesus like he's a nobody will be the very thing that ensures their own destruction because the owner of the vineyard will have the last word on the murderers of his son. The implications of this parable for the Pharisees was clear. Their positions as priests, the very law they said they loved, the temple they so revered, the very land under their feet, every single thing they cherished and held dear had been given to them by God. And instead of giving to God what belonged to him. They planned his execution. Instead of being good tenants of a vineyard, instead of being good stewards of Israel, they were wicked and malicious. And if they did not repent and turn from the evil they planned, then their days as tenants were over. People like them had stewarded the vineyard of Israel, the faith of Israel since the days of Abraham. People like them had abused the servants of God, the prophets of God, and now they planned to kill the owner's son. They plotted to kill Jesus, the son of the father. And because of this, the vineyard would be taken from them and given to new tenants. Tenants who would not forget to whom the vineyard and everything in it truly belonged. Jesus was there to tell the Pharisees he was handing the vineyard over to those who followed him. Now imagine you're one of the twelve that are standing beside Jesus when he says that. You look around at your eleven brothers and instantly each of you understands the implications of the parable. Jesus is talking about stripping Israel's religious leadership of their positions. He's talking about transferring those positions to new people, to new tenants. New tenants that will steward his covenant and people like he has always asked. New tenants that will steward the fruit of the vineyard like the master has always requested. 
every single disciple would have understood, Jesus was talking about them. These 12 men would be the foundational leadership in the Messiah's new kingdom. The Pharisees, the chief priests and elders, were the old tenants who were no longer fit to steward God's vineyard. And in their place, 12 of the most unlikely men ever assembled would now take the reins. In their place, a room full of people in Fort Worth, Texas, tend the vineyard of God. Guys, I don't have to convince you to stop being bad stewards. I don't need to convince you that the vineyard and everything in it belongs to God. I've been with you for several years now. I've watched you closely, and I know that you are ready to do exactly that. But as we build, as we grow, as we reach more and more people, I think the month of October and this focus on stewardship will become more and more necessary. Because it's, it's easy for us to focus on the benefits of serving God and His vineyard. It's easy to become enamored with the fruit that God is producing in our midst and cease being enamored with God Himself. It seems to be easy to lose sight of what God has given us to do. It seems to be easy to replace His calling with our plans. Just ask the old tenants. But guys, we are not the old tenants. We are the new tenants of the Master's vineyard. We give back to God what already belongs to Him. We remember that the vineyard and everything in it has been given to us to steward, but the vineyard and everything in it does not belong to us. It belongs to another. And when we see the Son of the Master approach, we roll out the red carpet. We fall at His feet and we worship Him. That's what the new tenants do. That's who the new tenants are. I have absolutely no idea what the next few years hold. There's so much good, there's so much hope of what God can produce in the coming months. But guys, whatever the Lord produces, whatever fruit that springs from the vine, whatever the vineyard owner asks of us, CTR will always act like good stewards. We will always act with the spirit of new tenants.